Father God, thank you that you stand over and above all things. And we pray right now for this time together that you would speak, um, that you would speak through these words and you would speak to every individual in this room, that whatever circumstance they may be in, whatever friends they know who are struggling, that you would give them the words to say and that you would give them words of comfort to be able to share. We thank you that ultimately words of comfort come from you through your word and pray that you would be able to um, draw us closer to you within this time together. In your name, amen. So, suppose this particular situation. You have a friend over for dinner. Someone who you know really, really well. And in the moment where you are just sitting, eating your food, they suddenly burst out and tell you that something particularly traumatic has happened in their lives. And it's taken you completely by shock. And in that moment where they've finished bearing their heart and soul to you, they finally turn to you and ask you this question. How can you believe God is good when there is so much suffering? So, in this time now, I'm going to give you one minute. You're going to turn to your neighbor and say how you might respond to this particular question. And if you'd not call yourself a Christian right now, now is your chance to ask one and hear what they would have to say. That's your one minute up. You can chat about this more at the end of the service. But it's just to get you thinking and to get you thinking about these particular moments. And you might have found yourself in a situation which is rather similar. Um, I was telling my brother about this particular talk and the lead up to it. um, And I said, we're talking about Christianity and suffering. And his response was, oh no, as if people's suffering isn't bad enough, you've got to try and, you know, have God tell you how you're feeling. Um, And I think that is what we feel like as Christians, don't we? When this kind of situation arises, when somebody talks about what they're going through, we feel like we've got to somehow shoehorn God into the conversation. We've got to tell people how they're supposed to feel. Um, I think that's a very real thing of which we're going through. Um, We imagine that someone's going through a really rough time and we're trying to think of, okay, we need to try and fit God into this, but that feels wrong because we're supposed to sympathize and empathize. So what does 
that really look like? Or maybe, in fact, you are going through this yourself and you're wondering what God has to say about what you're going through. Um, What is it that he really has to offer? The more I think about it and the more I look at it, the biggest answer which God gives every single time in Scripture is himself. And I used to not like that response. (laughs) I used to want to have something more than that. But hopefully by the end of this particular time together, you'll really begin to see why that is the best response that we can have to suffering and also how to phrase it to other people. And this is perhaps best addressed when looking at Job in particular. So I think that I'm going to unpack four particular truths which Job has to offer in response to this question of suffering that we can really cling to and know. And the first one is... It will make its mind up eventually. Yes. The Bible is very real about the awful things which happen to people. The Bible does not hold back, certainly does not hold back in this account in particular, of giving graphic, raw details of what happens in this world. Imagine your bank account has been hacked. Your entire life savings are gone with no hope of getting it back. You lose your job, your livelihood, your house collapses with no insurance. Every single piece of contents, every item of value has been utterly destroyed. Not to mention every member of your immediate family were having a party when they were caught in the middle of a tornado. The house has collapsed around them and you have heard that there are no survivors. Your grandchildren, your children, your parents, all in one freak accident. This is essentially what's just happened to Job. And chapter one is not even the half of it. The second chapter, he gets completely covered with sores. He has all over his body. He sits on ashes, which is the softest thing which he can sit on. The only survivor in this entire circumstance is his wife, who turns to him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Delightful. Past that point, you then have chapter after chapter of these awful friends who try blaming Job for his suffering. And this is just one book of the Bible. Um, It really does not hold back in how how awful circumstances, uh, how many awful circumstances there are. Above it all, we have the central figure of the entire scripture. We have the suffering servant. We have Jesus Christ, the all-powerful God suffering for mankind. And why is this important? Why does this matter? It's important because when we look at the devastation which goes on around us and we look at the Bible, we're not surprised. We see it reflecting the very reality that we see around us. And it's not like we're looking into sort of an unfamiliar, ethereal world where everybody seems to be on cloud nine and they worship God and everything's fine. In fact, we see the very opposite. We see Job, who is apparently very righteous, following God, knowing exactly 
knowing who he is and attempting to follow him and going through some of the worst of circumstances. And the pinnacle of this, we see also Christ, how he suffered from being separated from the most intimate relationship in the universe. And all of this despite leading a completely blameless life. If he can't bypass pain, how can we be expected to? Which kind of brings me on to the next second point, which we've had some crossover with. Bad things happen to righteous people. I think each of us could name someone who we know who is incredibly godly and has faced some of the worst of circumstances. And we're left wondering why. Job, in Job, within the second sentence of the first chapter, he is described as blameless and upright. And God himself even affirms it down in verse 8. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. He was the type of guy to host everybody's birthday party. I mean, you just saw the long list of things that he had. He had so much wealth, and he was very generous with it. And then at the end of it all, he would pray for his children's faith every day, wanting them to be right with God. The suffering he endures is totally disproportionate to how he's living his life. What does that mean? How, how does that truth help us in any way, shape, or form? How can we find that truth even remotely comforting? Again, we're not surprised when we see that this is reflected in reality. We don't see karma. We don't see people getting their just desserts. We don't see the people who are wrong therefore getting their just desserts in life. In fact, in the wisdom literature, in Job and Ecclesiastes, we see the very opposite. We see people wrestling with the fact that even the worst of people seem to get everything that anyone could possibly want. I think it's important with this particular point to know and to remind ourselves that there is a judgment. And we can actually be comforted by that. Um, we know that this world is not all that there is. We know that justice will ultimately be done in the end and we can be confident about a God who ultimately cares about injustice. But for now, the scales apparently seem tipped. Which brings us on to point three. God allows... Wait, there we go. God allows these things to happen, and somehow God is not in the wrong. He is both a good God and somehow allows evil to happen. In his infinite wisdom and mercy, God allows suffering. At the same time, he's still good. We have a God who hates evil, and we know isn't complicit in it. But we see down here in Job chapter 1, it looks like he's allowing evil. He's giving permission for evil to happen. How can 
God be good when he's allowing that? How can God both hate evil and allow it? This in itself is a huge question and one which many books and apologists have attempted to answer. Um, If you want to talk more about this afterwards and go into more detail, I'm very happy to. Here's what I do know in response to this question. God is more powerful than evil. Evil has not overcome God and is not threatening his throne. And we also know that God allowed the worst of evil to come upon himself. To quote Dorothy Sayers, There it is. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering, subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he kept to his own rules and played fair. How? Because we look at the cross. we know that we can ultimately look at the cross and know that he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He knew exactly what it was like to live the human experience. He knew exactly what it was like to be rejected. He knew exactly what it was like to suffer. And he knew exactly what it was to die. This, for me, is the bottom line. I don't know how precisely God allows these things to happen and is still good and holy, but I do know that the same God had the honesty and the courage in in Sayer's words to drink his own medicine. I know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begged the Father to take it away if there was any other option. But he faced that unanswered prayer and just said, not my will, but yours be done. The very pivot point of our faith hinges on the fact that we have a God who takes the very worst thing and makes it into the very best thing. What could be worse than the God of the universe dying on a cross? But we have the very best thing in that we have the resurrection. Somehow, God uses the worst evil to bring about good, and he's so sure that he put his money exactly where his mouth is. Um, Somebody was telling me this story that they were doing a Bible study. I believe it was in the Gospel of John. Um, And they invited someone who was a friend of theirs, a neighbor, who worked in the police department. Um, And the particular department that he worked for was in child abuse. Um, and he was very reluctant to come, very sceptical, didn't want to know anything about Christianity or Jesus. Um, But what happened was he came, they came to the point of looking at the cross, and this guy said in his words, I don't know whether I believe in God or not, but I do know this, the Christian God knew what it was to be a victim. So if you're here today and you're too angry to speak to God, too angry to pray, try praying to that God. Try praying to the God who actually knew what it was to die and knew what it was to have nails in his hands. 
because it's so much easier to be angry with the God who's surrounded by angelic beings in the sky than it is to be angry with the God on the cross. I used to like, I used to really want God to come down and just look me in the eye and tell me what I was going through was fine and that he understood and he knew. But when I came close enough to that and came close enough to the cross, I realized I was the one who couldn't look him in the eyes. Which brings us to point four. Oh, that would have been helpful. (laughs) God cares deeply about the suffering of his creation. You might be thinking, well, I can see that from the cross. I can see that from what you've just explained now. I'm not really getting that vibe from Job chapter one. I'm not really getting the impression that God particularly cares about his creation. Fair point. In which case, we might need to jump to the end of Job in order to understand this. Um, So just to fill you in before we do, um, so I think we're going to go from Job chapter 38, so you can find it in the meantime. Um, But just to fill you in on what happens, so spoiler alert, if you're planning on reading this book by yourself, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that you find out what happens in the end. Um, But Job, suffering from physical pain, We've just heard about his wife, who has just tells him that he should curse God and die. He refuses to. His friends, chapter after chapter, try telling him that because God is just, Job must have done something wrong. But we know that's not true. In the end, quite understandably, Job is tired and frustrated. He feels hopeless. And he wonders if God is really paying attention to him at all. In this particular passage, God himself gives an answer. God himself replies to Job in the midst of his struggle to understand why. We have four long, brilliant chapters, stunning pieces of poetry, which leaves you utterly flawed. So from Job chapter 8, I'm just going to read it aloud. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So this is huge. It opens with God speaking out of a storm. And he's asking questions about creation which Job could not possibly know the answer to. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. I used to read this as almost verging on sarcasm. Like, oh, you, you seem to know, you seem to understand. I remember that you were there, Job. You were there, present at the beginning of the earth. I used to think it was kind of just purely a macho show of power that God was in control. And in a sense, it definitely is. But there's another kind of area and side to this. And you can see that element of it in chapters 28 to 33. Which I think is further on. Does rain have a father who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? 
Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loosen the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? It suddenly moves into very nurturing language. See here, father, womb, birth. It goes from the potential to having the capacity to move entire constellations all the way down to the bear and its cubs. It goes from the greatest to the smallest thing which needs the tiniest amount of care and attention. Far from being sarcastic, what it really is saying is this. Who are you to say that I don't care? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know how I see, how I nurture the land, the young of the ravens, watch the doe until she bears the fawn? Pay attention to me and you'll see that I care. The lioness with her cubs, looking for food for family after the hunt. Don't you see the bigger picture? I notice the ones who need me. I care. I guess. I think I'll stay on that particular point. I guess the final question really is, well, these points we can't seem to tie together. Reconciling them completely will never fully understand the bigger picture of why God allows suffering. But I hope you can see exactly how brilliant and beautiful it is that in the midst of all of it that we get God. And the real question is, why worship? The real remaining question is, why worship? We know the Bible's very real about the awful things which happen to people. We know it happens to some of the best people we know who love God. We know that God is good and still hates evil. We know that God cares enough to put his money where his mouth is, and he cares deeply for us. Job knew that the most important thing that he could do in the midst of suffering is to worship God himself and to take the situation before him and just to lay it in, in his pain and his grief. I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, To what the outside world considers madness to turn to God and go, you give, you take away. We know members of this church who have modelled this so well, what it means to look to God in the midst of pain and of grief. I think I've only ever been there once in my life, but where you're so overcome and you physically cannot move, and in that moment you just can only mutter, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength. My song, and just gradually move into worship. Because the truth is, this world will eventually take everything from us, and I don't know what it would be like to go through all of that without Christ. It's not about when we're speaking to people about this, it's not about shoehorning God into the situation or telling them how they should feel. It's about pointing them to the God who feels. 
It's about showing them the living God who cares. It's about opening the Bible and saying, look, here is God. He cried. He stood with us and he cried. In fact, he bellowed with anger when faced with death. It means pointing to the cross and saying, this is our God. This is exactly what he's like. The best thing that we can give people is to introduce them to a God who cares. And if you're angry, that's okay. But here's who our God is. We cannot treat pain like it's irrelevant to our faith when it's so integral to it. And we can point to people like Job and to our own stories of how we are so glad that in the midst of all of this that we get God. And that even when it hurts, he really is enough. So, closing on the original point. The best thing which God offers in the midst of suffering is himself. And that's incredible. If you want to find out more about this God, there are Bibles at the back. You can, somebody asked me this the other week, so can I take this one home with me? You can, it's a bit battered, but you, you, know, you probably want a nice new one. Um, that's our gift to you. I recommend to all of us to read these last few chapters of Job, and the end itself is really surprising. But it indicates hope that one day the very worst things can be made good. And if you're here today and you're struggling and you don't know what it means to turn to God in the midst of what you're going through, um, do take this time to actually speak to somebody around you and to say, I don't know what it means to suffer and what to worship in the midst of what I'm going through, but will you help me with that and will you walk with me in that? Because I think that's one of the best things that we can do. I'm just going to pray briefly and hand it back to Richard. Father, I thank you that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of what we're going through, that we get you. That we can point to a God who knows exactly what it's like to endure the worst of circumstances. And we can rejoice knowing that in the end there's ultimate hope that you will restore all things, that you will reconcile all things to yourself, and that you do care. The same God who took care of Job is the same one who is with us still here and now, and the same one who was also on the cross. And we pray that um, in the conversations that we have with people, that we have the capacity to be able to point to you and to point to exactly who you are. And I pray for those of us who are struggling right now, Um, who are struggling to worship you and to know that you're in control, that you would speak to them so powerfully and they would be able to, in this time where we get to worship together, still know and acknowledge that you are good and you are God. We thank you for these things in your name. Amen.